so I, I wonder if any of those of you here this morning, those that are believers anyway, have ever marveled, have ever been mystified, sat in awestruck wonder at the fact that you are here in this church worshiping the one true God, the Creator of the universe and and the Master of all. And here's what I mean, why I, I ask that question. Since the fall, God has enacted His plans to reconcile the cosmos to Himself. He announces as much in in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Just immediately after the fall, this is what we read. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here, God is announcing His curse upon the serpent for the role that He played in the fall of mankind. There is a promised redemption in spite of the the fall. That redemption will come through the seed of the woman. And from this point forward, every male child that is born is born with a hope and expectation that he would be the one to deliver this decisive blow. This first prophecy about the coming Messiah is the root from which all of the other prophecies sprout. And as the generations came and went, this hope was delayed, but the promise never diminished. And with each successive generation, the line from which the promise would come becomes clearer and clearer. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 28, we read of Lamech naming his son Noah. Noah in the Hebrew. And that means rest or to bring rest. Lamech hoped that his son Noah would be the one that would finally bring the cosmos to its rest. And in a sense, he did, but not in the way that we had hoped. He was not the one through whom that permanent rest, that promise, would come. The promise would continue through Noah's son Shem. Shem to Terah, who then fathered Abram. Abram would have his name changed to Abraham. He would become the father of the Jewish people, of the nation of Israel. And it was to him that we see the continuation of this promise. It would be through the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people, that Messiah would come. It was to them that the covenants and the promises were given. Abraham's son Isaac would continue that line. The promise would then pass from Isaac to Jacob. Jacob would have twelve sons. They would become the twelve tribes of Israel. Jacob's son Judah then was given the privilege of perpetuating the promise. And the line became even clearer. It would be through Judah's descendant David that Messiah would come. And He did. Jesus was and is the fulfillment of the promise that was given to Adam and Eve, reiterated and clarified to and through Abraham and promised to David. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And it seemed the prevailing thought was that the covenants and the promises were only for the Jew. 
in order to be included in the rest that would come to the world, one had to be or had to become Jewish. And yet here we are. And the vast majority of us sitting here this morning are not Jewish. We're not privileged to be a part of God's special and chosen people, Israel. And yet, we understand that we are in fact included in the promises and those covenants that He gave to His people. And it really is a miracle. It's a mystery. It's a wonder. Here we are included. How is that possible? How are we as Gentiles included in those promises given to the Jewish people? And that's what we'll look at today. Right? The title of the message is Abraham's Gospel. And we'll be in Galatians chapter 3. We'll begin in verses 6 through 9. Galatians 3, 6 through 9. And if you are able, please stand with me as I read the very words of God. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of the faith who are the sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of the faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Please pray with me. Father, I am so grateful for Your Word. Lord, in Your Word, You have revealed Yourself to us. Father, we can know You through Your Word. Lord, we also get a very good glimpse of who we are. And Lord, it displays our desperate need for You. And so, Father, I just pray that this morning You would sanctify Your Word. Lord, Your Word is truth. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So this is the foundation of Paul's theology. Paul is known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. He refers to himself as such in three places. Once in Galatians chapter 1, again in chapter 2, and then again in, in Romans chapter 11. So his mission, his calling, was to take this message of the risen Jewish Messiah and to bring Gentiles into the kingdom, into the family of Abraham. The fact that we're sitting here today, I think, is proof enough that that mission was pretty successful. But it wasn't easy. Paul was beaten. He was stoned. And eventually, he would be killed for his message of Gentile inclusion. And truly, it was his stance on the inclusion of Gentiles into the kingdom that continually found him at odds with the Jewish leadership, as well as, oftentimes, his own fellow Jewish believers. It seems that the norm, the practice, or expectation was that when you became a believer as a Gentile, you would then need to become Jewish. And on a certain level, that makes sense. You're worshiping the Jewish God. You're worshiping the Jewish Messiah. You're placing your faith and trust in the promises that were given to the Jewish people. In order to be included in all of that, you then needed to be Jewish. And there's good evidence that this was the case. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, Peter is charged with going to the home of Cornelius. 
Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He's a Gentile. Acts chapter 10, verse 1 and 2 tells us a little bit about him. It says, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion, who was called, who, who was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So Cornelius is a Gentile who, for whatever reason, has been attracted and, and drawn to worshiping the God of the Jews. And he is, to whatever degree he's able, participating in the Jewish and form and practice of worship. And it's while he's participating in the standard Jewish time of prayer, the, the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, that he is told to send for Peter. And so he does. And the way God orchestrates this meeting is truly remarkable. As the men sent by Cornelius are traveling to find Peter, Peter is having this incredible vision. And in his own words, that vision tells him that he's not to consider any man common or unclean. Acts 10.28 says this, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. Just a quick note. That's nowhere in the Scriptures. You will not find that anywhere in the Scriptures. He continues, And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, For what reason have you sent for me? Peter preaches the Gospel. The Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his household and they are saved. You can look at it if you want. I'll read from Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely... No one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Christ Jesus. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So look back again at verse 45. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. These are Jewish believers. And they are expressing amazement because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. If there were Gentile believers at this point, there would be absolutely no reason for the amazement here. None whatsoever. This is new. This is unheard of. And it does cause some problems for Peter. Flip over to Acts chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, Jews, took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? These are believers. And they're upset with Peter that he would go to uncircumcised men, to Gentiles, and eat with them. But Peter explains what happened, starting in verse 15 of chapter 11. 
He says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Right? And then their response, verse 18. When they heard this, they quieted down and they glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Apparently up to this point, that has not happened yet. Right? There would be no surprise, no amazement at a Gentile coming to faith. And it doesn't stop here. Gentiles begin pouring into the synagogues, getting saved, and it creates real problems for the believing community. And this is what Paul is dealing with. Paul has been given his message directly from the Lord. He tells us in Galatians 1, verses 11 through 12, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation that Paul received was that Gentiles could be included in the kingdom of God, the family of Abraham, as Gentiles. They need not become Jews. And if you read the accounts of Paul's witness, we see this clearly. Paul goes into the synagogues. He shares about Jesus being the risen Messiah. And the typical response is this. Some Jews believe. Some want to hear more and they invite him to come back. Some Jews reject that message. But many Gentiles are saved. So it's not the message of a suffering and risen Messiah that causes Paul problems. It is that he claims that Gentiles can be included without becoming Jews. That causes Paul so much trouble. In Acts chapter 21 and 22, we read of Paul being seized in the temple. He's accused of bringing a Gentile beyond the place where Gentiles are allowed. And the crowd is killing him for it. They are literally in the process of killing Paul. And then he's rescued by the Romans. And just before he's ushered away, he asks if he can address the crowd. He's given permission. And Paul begins to speak in his and their native language, which is Hebrew. Causes the crowd to quiet down. Paul begins to share his testimony. He tells of his conversion. And they're listening. And there's no objection to what he's saying. There are no outcries when he mentions that it was Jesus speaking to him from heaven. But as soon as he mentions his mission to go to the Gentiles, the crowd erupts again. Right? Acts 22, verses 21 and 22. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. It's his message of Gentile inclusion that causes so many problems for Paul. And really, I mean, this is all Peter's fault in the first place, right? He's the one who started all of this. But Paul is the one who really deals with the fallout of this message. And that's what we're dealing with 
in the book of Galatians. It appears that the Gentiles who have come to faith are now being pressured by Jewish believers to convert. And it seems that the Gentiles are considering doing this. And they may have good reasons for it. Jewish status granted them legal protection under Roman law. Roman law granted the Jewish people the right to practice their faith freely. It exempted them from the requisite emperor worship. It, it exempted them from, from idolatry that was incumbent upon the rest of the population in the Roman Empire. So without Jewish status, the God-fearing Gentiles, who then chose not to participate in the Roman style of worship, were vulnerable to arrest and prosecution for atheism, which could lead to death. They didn't have to, if they converted, participate in those duties. And so it granted them also, as part of the community, the right to intermarry. Being a part of a community that you can't marry into or even associate with really doesn't work for long. Has anyone ever seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof? It just doesn't work long, right? People tend to fall in love and the more taboo that match, the more attractive and inevitable it becomes. So the young Jewish boy falls in love with a Gentile girl. They're married. They have children. Their children would not be considered Jewish by the community. And they would, along with the parents, be ostracized. So they were caught in between two worlds and they really couldn't belong to either one. The social ambiguity alone would have been extremely difficult for them. It would appear in this case, however, that in addition to those reasons, these God-fearing Gentiles had it in their heads that they would not obtain a share in the kingdom or the world to come if they weren't Jewish. They would come to believe that only Israel proper, those who were Jewish by birth or by conversion, could be saved. Yes, absolutely, 100%, salvation required faith in Jesus. But it was only for the Jew. So faith in Jesus was of no merit to these Gentiles. You had to become a Jew in order to make it effective. And, and I don't think we should judge them too harshly here. Right? We still have people attempting to add necessities to the Gospel. Baptism, speaking in tongues, whatever that may be. The list goes on and on and on. And becoming Jewish, again, as we said, did make some sense. They're following the Jewish God. They're following the Jewish Messiah. And if you're going to commit yourself to worshiping the Jewish God and the Jewish Messiah, it just made sense that you would become Jewish. And when Paul hears about this, he quickly writes what we know as Galatians. And that brings us to the foundation of his gospel preached beforehand to Abraham. Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when he writes, all the nations will be blessed in you. Genesis chapter 12 is the call of Abraham, Abram at the time. Uh, you can turn with me there, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I think the verses will also be on the screen for you if you don't want to keep flipping. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. 
and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is, according to Paul, the gospel that was preached beforehand. It's the all-nations promise. It's, it's God's unconditional promise to Abraham, his descendants, and to the nations that they will be blessed in him. So according to Paul's theology, the gospel it was, it was preached before to Abraham was that very thing. In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. They'll be grafted into your faith. That is the gospel, according to Paul. Now, there is some disagreement about what this verse is actually saying. Due to the form of the verb, it is a little unclear whether it says they'll bless themselves by you or that they will be blessed in you. And, and we simply don't have the time to go into all of that, whether it's reflexive or passive. But the Apostle Paul understands it to mean that through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He bases his entire theology of Gentile inclusion on this statement. And so if Paul understands the verse that way, I think I'll follow suit and keep that interpretation. And this is the culmination of God's will and His plan for the world. That through Abraham, all nations will be blessed. Through his descendants. Through his seed. And Paul elaborates on this as well. If you look at verse 16 of Galatians chapter 3, We'll see it there. He says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. That is Christ. The gospel preached beforehand to Abraham was that through his descendant, his distant descendant, Jesus, all the families of the earth would be blessed. But Paul understood this to apply to Gentiles as well, not just to Jews. How? Where does he find this interpretation? In Genesis chapter 15, God reiterates this promise to Abraham. Again, you can turn with me there. The, the words will be on the screen. Genesis 15, 1-6. through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? Since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Since you've given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. God tells Abraham that he is his shield and that Abraham's reward will be very great. To which Abraham re replies, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Here's my paraphrase. Great. You're my shield. You're my reward. Whoop-de-doo. <laughs> right? You promised me children. And I have no children. You've given me nothing. I have nothing. My heir is a foreigner. That's what we call chutzpah, right? 
God reassures Abraham, though, that the promise is still in full effect. Eliezer will not be his heir, but one from his own body will be his heir. And then he takes him outside and he tells him to number the stars and says, so shall your descendants be. And then we see this passage that Paul quotes from in Galatians, verse 6. Then he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him. He credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith, Abraham's belief in the promise that one of his descendants would finally and ultimately crush the head of the adversary, the accuser of all mankind, was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was declared justified, legally exonerated before God based on his faith in the promise. And so imagine one day as Paul is reading through the scroll of Genesis, he has this epiphany. He reads the words in the scroll and he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. So maybe Paul's thoughts go something like this. Abraham wasn't even circumcised yet. He'd not received the commandment of circumcision. The covenant of circumcision doesn't come for another 15 years after this promise was made. So if circumcision is a prerequisite for salvation, for justification, for righteousness, then how can it be that God reckoned Abraham with righteousness prior to his circumcision? Obviously, this implies that an uncircumcised person, a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, can be saved without becoming Jewish. Here's the logic. Again, if Abraham was declared righteous on the basis of his faith in the promises of God prior to being circumcised, then circumcision and Jewish status cannot be considered a prerequisite for salvation. Based upon this insight, then, Paul argues that taking on the works of the law those things that make us Jewish, circumcision primarily, is not needed for salvation. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Paul's statement there in verse 7 of Galatians 3 is radical. It's, it's a counterintuitive statement. It's revolutionary. It's earth-shattering. Paul is claiming that those who do not convert and become Jews, to this point the only way to become a son of Abraham, can achieve the status of a son of Abraham by exercising the faith of Abraham. So Paul here is creating this new category of people within Israel, the proselytes by faith. He demonstrates that those who believe as Abraham believed could be made righteous just as he was, whether Jewish or Gentile. And Jesus himself agrees with this statement. In John chapter 8, verse 39, we read, They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Now the works in this case are the works of which James speaks in James chapter 2. The works that James refers to are the natural outgrowth of a genuine faith that Abraham possessed. Jesus was saying what Paul is saying. What James is saying. Abraham's faith is what provided for him legal exoneration. 
his justification before God. That faith that he had then was expressed through the things that he did in his obedience to God's call. So if you had the faith of Abraham, which God credited to him as righteousness before circumcision was given, you too would then be obedient as he was. You would do the things which he did, which will in turn show that your faith is truly genuine. So faith apart from works, the works of becoming Jewish, leads to works, obedience, which then proves your faith was genuine in the first place. And that then leads to righteousness. So when Paul refers to works in writing to his Gentile audience in Galatia, he is speaking of conversion. The sign commandments and the particulars that indicate Jewish status. He's not talking about obedience to God. That's not part of what he's speaking to. He's talking about changing from being a Gentile and becoming Jewish in order to be eligible for salvation. And there are two major reasons Paul stands so adamantly against this. One, again, not even Abraham was required to be circumcised before he was credited with righteousness. His imputed righteousness was granted based on his faith in the promises of God. So if circumcision is required to be saved, then salvation is no longer based on the promise, but on works, specifically the works of becoming a Jew. And two, if everyone who wishes to enter the kingdom of God were to become Jewish, there is no longer an all-nations promise. If everybody's Jewish, there's no longer nations. But that's, it's the former reason that is of critical importance. Paul understands that if a Gentile were to submit to circumcision as a requisite for salvation, they're no longer trusting in the promises of God. They're trusting in their own flesh. So essentially, in Paul's mind, this counts as abandoning their faith. And he says as much in Galatians 2, verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And again, Jesus says as much to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to him in the night, and Jesus gets right to the point. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Nicodemus, your Jewishness doesn't matter. It has no bearing on anything. It's not what saves you. You must be made new. You must become a new creation. You cannot trust in your Jewish status for your salvation. You must come in faith alone, just like everybody else. You must place your faith in the promise for your justification, not in your status as a Jew. And Paul makes this clear, starting in verse 15 of Galatians chapter 3. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. 
For if he, if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. We all understand this from a human perspective. When someone writes their will, that's it. That document is absolutely binding. For example, my dad had a will. And regardless of what I think about his will and what I wish maybe he would have said, I can't change that. I have no power, no authority, no right to do so what, whatsoever. What it says is binding. We all get that. And so Paul's saying the same thing in regard to the promise given to Abraham. He's not comparing the new covenant with the old covenant here, the one given at Sinai. He's comparing that covenant, the Sinai covenant, to an even older covenant. That's the promise given to Abraham. So because God gave His people with the law the law at Sinai doesn't mean that the promise given to Abraham is now nullified. That suddenly it's based on the law. He's in, granted the inheritance based on the promise. And the law didn't change that. And he further illustrates this by then contrasting the birth of Ishmael and Isaac. Abraham was promised a child from his own body. And when he and Sarah thought that the promise was taking just a little too long, kind of just like all of us, isn't it? They decided that they could make it happen through their own efforts. They'd help God fulfill His promises. And so they took matters into their own hands. Abraham was given Hagar, Sarah's maid, and through her, we have Ishmael. Ishmael, as Paul puts it, was born according to the flesh. There was nothing miraculous, special about his birth. According to the flesh means just physically, naturally. New American Commentary says this, and I quote, the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh. That is, by the normal means of human procreation. Doesn't mean it's bad, it just means it wasn't special. Abraham and Sarah conceived Isaac, however, through a supernatural miracle. She's barren. They're old. And yet she's able to conceive and, and Isaac is born as a result of the promise. And again, what's the promise? We've heard it time and time again. That through Abraham's descendant, the entire world, all nations, would be blessed. And again, Galatians 3.16, promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say unto seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who, who is Christ. The promise is that all nations will be blessed in Abraham's seed, the Messiah. Sarah conceived, she gave birth to Isaac, and according to God's promise to give Abraham a seed. Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Isaac was born through a miraculous promise. But Ishmael is born through Abraham going into Hagar, attempting to fulfill God's promise himself, attempting to earn, to make it happen on his own efforts. So Ishmael is born in the normal physical way. Paul's contrasting the Gentile God-fearing believers against those Gentile believers who had undergone conversion. To Paul, the God-fearing Gentiles who remained as a Gentile, they were like Isaac. They were trusting in the promise. They were waiting for God to do only what God could do. On the other hand, the Gentile believers who did convert, he likened them to Ishmael. 
They had set aside the promise that God made about all nations being blessed in his seed. And so they adopted the natural means, the means according to the flesh, literally the removal of some flesh for their way to become a part of Abraham's family. The one, Ishmael, became a son through regular means, through the flesh, through human efforts. The other, through the promises of God. Only the sons of faith then, the sons of the promise, are the true heirs. And all other Gospels that add anything to faith alone, that say Jesus plus anything, are not true Gospels. And again, the list is long. Baptism, tongues, tithe, any of those things. Right? The analogy tells us that there are two ways to become a child of Abraham. One is through the normal way, according to the flesh, that represents man's efforts to bring about what is promised, which we can never do. This is going under the law, conversion, circumcision. This is Ishmael. The other is a matter of faith. Having a faith in the promise that God is going to bless all nations through the seed of Abraham, through the Messiah. This is trusting God for only what He can do. Right? This is the promise. And so when it comes to salvation, being justified, legally exonerated, however you want to look at it, we're all in the same boat. Every single one of us. We bring nothing to the equation. Absolutely nothing. We're totally bankrupt. And so this is why Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now, Paul cannot be talking about anything other than salvation here because it's obvious that men and women maintain their distinctiveness. Slaves and free maintained their distinctiveness. Even Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, maintained their distinctiveness. Oneness does not mean sameness. So what's the point of all of this? The point is that salvation is not dependent on anything that you can bring. There's nothing that you can do. You have nothing to bring. You're absolutely, totally bankrupt when it comes to your justification before God. Salvation is not dependent on where you were born, when you were born, who your parents are, whether you have all the spiritual gifts or none of the spiritual gifts. Salvation is based upon God's promise and your faith alone in that promise. Nothing else matters. And it's been this way since the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to cover their own guilt. The Bible tells us they sewed fig leaves together because they suddenly realized they were naked. Their effort to cover their guilt was entirely inadequate. It did nothing for them. And so God steps in and God provides the covering that they need by making garments of skin. He made them for Adam and Eve and He clothes them. And while not directly stated that animal sacrifice was, was used to provide this covering, it's widely accepted that indeed it was. And so from the very beginning, God is demonstrating that He alone is the one who is able to cover our guilt, and He does through, through the sacrifice of an innocent. And then secondly, once you've placed your faith and trust in the promise of God, accomplished through the person of Jesus, you need not add anything to it. You won't be more saved if you volunteer more at the church. 
You won't be more saved if you give more to the church. Developing a spiritual gift doesn't make you more saved, just as not really having or knowing what your gift is makes you less saved. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do these things, right? Serving, giving, using the gifts that God has given you for His glory and for the advancement of the kingdom should be the things that characterize your life. But be careful that you do not treat them as a requirement. Justification, exoneration, salvation requires nothing but acknowledging that God has done everything for you and you simply need to trust that He has done so. Once we begin trying to add something to what He's done and only what He can do, we make salvation something other than a free gift of God. We make it about what we can do to earn it. And as Paul wrote, if there was anything at all that we could do to earn this, then Christ died needlessly. So I'll close with more words from Paul. These come from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11-13. through 13. These words should make you pause. These words should make you reflect of the incredible, the incredible miracle that has made it possible for you to be sitting here this morning as a member of the family of God. If you are here and you you realize that you're not yet in that family, then hear these words. Realize that God has done everything for you according to the promise that He made to Abraham, that through Abraham's descendant, Jesus the Messiah, you can be blessed a part of the family, a member of the kingdom. Trust Him today. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11-13. through 13. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at this time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, those may be my favorite words in the Bible, but now, everything has changed. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Please pray with me.